Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is Say Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Sadie Eck. And I am Courtney Eck. And it's Courtney's night. And she just told me right before we started recording that this may be her favorite case she's ever told. Yeah. The most I, interesting. The most terrible. I don't know. All of the above, big time. Yeah, I've reached I've reached the top of the mountain with this one, you guys. And this was a listener suggestion. And I don't Ooh. remember which listener exactly suggested this. So please come forward so I can give you applause because... Oh my God. We've been doing this for four years now? Yeah, like three and a half. Three and a half years. And yeah, this one, this one hit all the buttons. I don't even know. I don't know what the words are, but it's the creepiest. It's the most shocking in some ways. And I, when I was done with it, I'm going to try real hard not to cry all through this whole story. When I was Mm. done with it, I just sat and like, physically sobbed like it you'll get it you'll understand but holy shit it's also a case that i'm going to guess 95 percent of the people listening to this have heard of Ah. so this is the misunderstood murders of kitty genovese and annie mae johnson definitely know the names definitely know kitty genovese definitely trigger warning for rape and just a lot of stuff. I really tried to spare the details, but I did leave some in because I think they're important and also Mm -hmm. they're part of the psyche of the killer. But whoa, this is a good one to skip if that is hard for you. Mm -hmm. Your mental health isn't quite together today. Yeah, it's dark. It is dark. There are a ton of details available about this Mm -hmm. case, just endless and Uh, Also, a quick note that I got most of the story from the book Kitty Genovese, The Murder, The Bystanders, The Crime That Changed America by Kevin Cook. And uh, read the book. I left out tons and tons, but I honestly, it would have gotten to a point where this would have just been an audio book of that book Mm -hmm. because (laughs) it's so good. So Catherine Susan Genovese, who was known as Kitty, was born in Brooklyn to Vincent and Rachel Genovese. 
Vincent ran the Bay Ridge Coat and Apron Supply Company, and they lived in a four-family row house on St. John's Place in the mostly Irish and Italian neighborhood of Park Slope. Remember when we needed apron stores? <laughs> I was like, you and me? When do we need it? No, yeah, I don't no. know. In yes. general? Like, yes. Oh. There was a little store. There's a button store and an apron yeah. store. Yes. Kitty was the oldest of five and was, quote, the talker, bright-eyed, and full of pep. She was popular in school, got great grades in the classes she enjoyed, like music. And, quote, Kitty was attractive, but there was more to her than good looks. Kitty had charm. She was named the class cut-up her senior year. After Kitty graduated from high school, her family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, after Kitty's mother witnessed a murder in their neighborhood. But Kitty chose to stay in New York. Quote, I feel free in New York. I'm alive here. She promised to find a job in a safe neighborhood and take the train to visit them regularly, and so they eventually agreed. She stayed in her grandfather's spare room until she made enough money working as a secretary at an insurance company to rent an apartment of her own. Eventually, she took a job as a bartender in a pub in Hollis, Queens, that was, quote, the kind of neighborhood joint that had Christmas lights around the bar mirror all year. In 1961, Kitty was arrested for running small bets through the bar she worked at. (laughs) And when the undercover officer confronted her, quote, I got annoyed with them. I said, yeah, that's right. I take in thousands a day and I get 5%. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. She's like, I'm not the person that needs to be getting in trouble for this shit. (laughs) Next thing I knew, they dragged me in. It was a $9 Uh, bet. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, she'd been doing it for like a month. Other than that brush with the law, Kitty had a lovely life in the big city. Queens was the most safe of the five boroughs at the time, and the charming Kitty made tons of friends as she worked behind the bar. She also fell in love. Hmm. In 1963, 24-year-old Marianne Zylonko, I think that's how you pronounce it, Zylonko, lived in Greenwich Village at the same time that the, quote, atomic isotopes from the H-bomb tests began showing up in the enamel of school children's teeth. Oh, that's good news. Con Ed announced a plan to build a million kilowatt nuclear power plant in the middle of Queens, Mm -hmm. which I meant to look up and see if that was ever done. Was that done, anybody who's from New York? Mm TV sets were suddenly available in color, and Andy Warhol unveiled his silk screens of soup cans and glorious dynam donned silk rabbit ears to work undercover at the new Playboy Club on 59th Street, enduring long nights of cottontail pinching for her magazine expose, I Was a Playboy Bunny. Mm -hmm. I always forget that she did that. Yeah. In my mind, Gloria Steinem has always just been a a handsome older woman, you know? Right. (laughs) After Marianne found a book called The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith, she learned that there were other people in the world who weren't interested in opposite-sex relationships and that she could find a lot of them in the village. And so when she was 16, she left her home in New Hampshire and moved to the city to find her people. Quote, I was a misfit, at least in New Hampshire. My mother was glad to see me go. The quote continues, homosexuality was still illegal in 1963, even in New York City, and you didn't go around proud of it. You were careful because there were people who would beat you up if they knew. 
The Swing Rendezvous was an underground lesbian club where women with sapphic tendencies could meet and fall in love. And one night while Marianne was making her way through the crowd, a cute brunette approached her and asked, quote, don't I know you from somewhere? Hmm. Marianne responded, I don't think so. And the other woman smiled and said, oh, I think I do. I'm Kitty. (laughs) (laughs) They danced and they had a drink at the bar before Kitty disappeared into the crowd. Marianne didn't know anything about Kitty except for her first name and couldn't remember if she'd shared any of her personal information, so she assumed she'd never see her again. Then four days later, she came home from work to the room in the boarding house that she'd been staying in and found a note tacked to her door that said, I'll call you at seven, the phone across the street. Oh, my God. (gasps) So Marianne was standing by the phone at 7 p.m. when Kitty called and invited her to meet at the Seven Steps, which was another gay club and was, quote, secretly famous. Errol Flynn used to drop in. He loved to do poppers and always had some on him. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn visited. Also Jack and Jackie Kennedy when he was a senator from Massachusetts. Oh. Eventually, 27-year-old Kitty showed up and, quote, 50 years later, Marianne recalls that as the best moment of her life. Oh, my God. Courtney. <laughs> I know. I'm already, you I'm already tearing up. I'm already tearing up. I met lying. my wife in the village, you guys. Oh. I looked it up, and I met her, like, five blocks from there. No, we're not going to survive it. No, trust me. I'm already, like, tearing up. I'm already fighting back tears. It gets so much harder. Quote, sometimes you meet a person and you just know. By the next morning, they knew they wanted to live together. And so after living together in a hotel for two weeks, they moved to a one bedroom apartment in a 14 unit building on Austin Street in Kew Gardens, which was a very safe neighborhood with the only police activity being, quote, complaints about boys playing or garbage cans being turned over. During the day, Kitty and Marianne's neighbor would enter their apartment when she heard the phone ring so she could take messages for them. What? Yes. <sighs> Rodney Dangerfield grew up there. Oh, my God. And he told jokes about how the neighborhood was so rough. The one time someone pulled a knife on him, it was a butter knife. <laughs> <laughs> Kitty's tastes for home decor were more on the cozy side, while Marianne had more bohemian tastes. Marianne set up an easel in the apartment so she could practice painting after her lessons with a local artist, and they filled their flower boxes with records and books because they had no interest in growing plants. Mm. Quote, they discussed art, music, movies, astrology, and they were both cancers, which is a very romantic match. Intensely emotional, highly sexual, and jealous. Yay, I'm a cancer. (laughs) Most people assumed they were airline attendants who lived together to save money. And Marianne started bartending in the neighborhood so she didn't have to commute so far for work. They would take the train into the village on a lot of Monday nights to go to gay bars, which were frequently raided by the police or gangs of young men looking for people to beat up. So they said they felt the most safe in Kew Gardens where people either didn't know their sexuality or didn't care. Kitty wanted to open a restaurant one day, quote, a romantic place with white tablecloths, Chianti bottles and wicker baskets and family recipes on the menus. Oh, my God. 
She also wanted children and confided in her neighbor that she'd actually been married to a man for two months, but had found sex very painful and had consulted a doctor about having a surgery that would make it less so, so that she could conceive. The couple's only real fights ever happened because of money. Kitty was very free with money and was constantly loaning friends money while Marianne was much more conservative. And one day, Marianne bought Kitty a poodle named Andrew to apologize for a particularly bad fight. (laughs) (laughs) A little black poodle named Andrew. The best way to get over a fight ever. (laughs) So March 13th, 1964 was Kitty and Marianne's one-year anniversary and Kitty had to work her usual shift at the bar and then went home around 3 a.m. When she got to her car where it was parked near the bar, a man named Winston Mosley was watching. He followed her to the parking lot of the Long Island Railroad Station where Kitty always illegally parked because it was just 15 yards from her building and parking was impossible near her building, especially at that time of night. She started walking toward the lit side of her building and when she heard footsteps behind her, she started running. Mm-hmm. Mosley eventually caught up with her and stabbed her 13 times. Mm-hmm. Winston Mosley was born in Harlem in 1935 and grew up as an only child with his mother, Fanny, who was known to bully her husband, Alfonso, who she'd met while his band was touring the Midwest. According to Fanny, Winston had an IQ of 135, which was not true. It was like 118. (laughs) Braggart. He was potty trained at four months, could read before the first grade, and was interested in painting poetry and played the flute, all which she supported. Fanny left him alone at night while her husband worked the night shift, and she went off to have affairs with other men. No, no. When Winston was nine, Fanny was admitted to the hospital to have a tumor removed from her abdomen, then never came home. Oh, no. And not because she died, but because she was sick of her family, and so she disappeared to go back to Michigan where she'd grown up. Wow. Yeah. That's some shit right there. That's some shit. Like, Mommy's going to go to the hospital now, but I'm going to be okay, but you're still never going to see me. Winston was also shipped off to Michigan to be raised by his grandmother, and he became fascinated with animals and insects and thought he'd become a scientist one day. When Winston was 10, Alfonso moved to Detroit and Winston moved back in with him, at which point he told him that he loved him, but he had to let him know he wasn't his biological father. Oh, man. When he was 16, his aunt started raping him. Oh, God. Yep. And that continued for two years. When he was 19, he got married and the couple moved back to Brooklyn, where they had a very turbulent relationship until they divorced in 1957. Winston made a good living working as a machine operator and eventually remarried, had a son, and purchased a home. Winston's moods swung from sullen and withdrawn to very affectionate and complimentary, and his wife said he was more or less a good husband and great provider. His mother came back into his life eventually, and he let her move into his house despite Alfonso's protests, and they also took in a 14-year-old cousin who they planned to adopt. Winston kept an immaculate home and yard and personal appearance, and the family had five dogs and an ant farm that Winston adored. Oh, my God. 
His wife said that around the winter of 1963, their sex life went from fairly normal, despite never seeing him naked, to almost non-existent. Mm. She said that one time she woke up in the wee hours of the morning and he was gone, and he told her he'd just gone for a drive. Mm. The old just gone for a drive mm-hmm. defense. Who has ever in the history of the world woken up in the middle of the night? I just need to go for a drive. Killers. Serial killers. Period. Done. That's all. Cheaters and killers. (laughs) On March 13th, Winston started driving around North Jamaica and Hillside and then back towards South Ozone Park, quote, just looking. Quote, he was accustomed to this kind of hunting and he was willing to give up if it didn't work out. There had been other sleepless nights when he hunted successfully and got... Mm-hmm. and got home safe with a secret no other living soul knew, then still others, when he gave up, called it a night and drove home. He knew how to wait. Ugh. He had been just about to give up when he saw Kitty walk to get in her car and drive off to head home. When she turned onto her street, he said he was sure she was his target for the night. Quote, a quiet, dark street. That's what I was hoping for. No, no. So police initially suspected Marianne had killed Kitty in a jealous rage. She had been woken up at 4 a.m. to news of Kitty's death and had spent three hours drinking vodka with her neighbor Carl Ross while her building and neighborhood filled with police and forensics. Mm. Kitty's body had been found at the bottom of Ross's stairs, and he was actually arrested after he kicked a hole in his door because an officer told him to go home because he'd kept interrupting as people questioned Marianne. Oh, man. By the next day, police had learned that Marianne was Kitty's girlfriend, and so she was interrogated for six hours. Oh, God. Quote, they asked about their past affairs, their sex life, their sexual positions. No, no, no. Yep. And then they drove her to the morgue to identify no, Kitty's remains. Please. Marianne's friends distanced themselves from her because it was already so dangerous to be gay, and she had attracted the attention of too many police. So she spent all of her time with her neighbors, Ross and Angelo, while she drank herself to sleep and woke up shouting in the middle of the night. Oh, God. Yep. Marianne attended Kitty's funeral, but wasn't allowed in the front row with the family. And Kitty's father later came and got Kitty's dog, Andrew, and brought him back to Connecticut. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is just too sad. It's so fucking sad. A few days later, police lost interest in Marianne as a suspect, and their leads went cold until someone saw Winston taking a TV out of a neighbor's house on March 18th. When Winston went back into the house, the neighbor called a friend to confirm the neighbors weren't in the process of moving. And when he confirmed they weren't, he called the police and then the man removed the distributor cap from from Winston's car so he wouldn't be able to start it when he returned. (laughs) I'm going to figure out what the fuck the distributor cap is because that is a good trick. (laughs) When the car wouldn't start, Winston started to walk away casually but was apprehended by the police moments later and was arrested after they found several appliances and a whole bunch of porn in his car. Uh. He admitted that he'd pulled off several other minor robberies over the years and had given the TVs to his father who ran a repair shop. The detective who interviewed him said there was, quote, something creepy in his expressionless calm and so kept asking him questions, especially about Kitty's murder. Interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Some witnesses had reported seeing a white car in the area at the time of her murder, and Winston was driving a white Corvair when he was arrested and had small scabs on two of his fingers. When the detective confronted Winston about the cuts, and he said he'd got them from working around the house, the detective said, no, you got those cuts from Kitty Genovese when you were putting the knife in. Quote, the room filled with silence, Mosley looked around almost shyly, a bare curl of a smile shaping on his lips. It was 5.57. Okay, I killed her, he said. Mm -hmm. Then he calmly explained that he'd been driving around with a serrated hunting knife in his coat pocket, looking for someone to attack, and when he saw Kitty, he stalked her, jumped her, attempted to rape her, killed her, and fled. He also mentioned that she had been wearing a sanitary pad, which was the detail that solidified for police that he was her killer. Yes. Horrifying. He also said that he'd stolen her wallet, removed the 40... removed the $49 inside and tossed it into the bushes. Police found it exactly where he'd claimed he'd disposed of it. Mm. He said that on the way home, he came up on a car idling at a green light because the driver was asleep. He woke the driver up, warned him of the dangers of carbon monoxide poisoning in a running car, and then went home, washed Kitty's blood off of his knife, and went to work. Oh, my God. So you're like, just took a life. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, I need to stop and save this life. This guy is That's so crazy. It just gets creepier and creepier, too. Just really honestly prepare yourself because we're about to enter the Creep horror zone. zone. Yeah, Oof. like pretty much anytime we get the super facts. Oh, my God. The things that people do. I think a lot of the times we can remain somewhat removed from mm-hmm. all of this, but not in this case. He later confessed to brutally attacking several other young women, all of them black, and so police hadn't taken any real notice of the crimes. Oh, my God. He even killed one of them, a 24-year-old woman named Annie Mae Johnson, 12 days before he killed Kitty. Wow. Yep. He said that he'd been out on a drive when he saw Annie Mae parking her car a few blocks from his house. I'm also going to say I don't have any details of Annie Mae, unfortunately, I dug and dug, but Kitty's case is so famous. Annie yeah. May has, there's really no mention of her anywhere other than the fact that she was his first victim. Mm-hmm. So he approached her and pressed a rifle to her chest. Annie May held out her purse thinking she was being robbed and he took it and then shot her. The rifle was the type that has to be reloaded every shot. And he said that she held out her keys and asked for help getting back into her house while he reloaded. Oh, my God. Quote, he helped her up, then shot her again, maybe three, four times. He then rolled her into her house. I tried to drag her, but she was hard to handle. I had to roll her in. I undressed her and then I had relations with her. Mm -hmm. Winston's wife, Betty, later testified that on the rare occasion that they had sex, he insisted on performing oral sex on her to become aroused. And so he did the same with Annie Mae, who was still breathing. Oh, my God. Uh, Yes. When he was still impotent, he removed the scarf from around her neck, stuffed it between her legs, covered her in newspapers, and lit her on fire. Oh, my God. Yep. 
The only issue with Winston's confession was that Annie Mae hadn't been shot. She'd been stabbed with an ice pick. When police confronted him about that detail, he shrugged and, quote, with the knowing look of a teacher waiting patiently for his perplexed class to catch on to a problem he has given them, and he said, quote, the coroner was wrong. I shot her. So Annie May's body was exhumed, and sure enough... Oh, my God. After x-raying her remains, they found six bullets still lodged in her stomach. Did they, did they even do an autopsy? I know. Probably not. Oh, my God. Right? Obviously, the coroner saw these holes Ruins. in her. Yeah. Yeah. And said that they looked like ice pick God. punctures, but didn't bother to, like, pry Look. any further. Oh, God. He then confessed to killing... Okay, so this detail is much debated, but he... One of the police officers was like, I bet you killed that 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, too. So he said, yeah, I did. But her killer had already been identified as Alvin the Monster Mitchell, and he was set to go to trial. So the confession threw a big old wrench in that case. But it's still much debated. Mm. Winston's lawyer is pretty sure that he did it, but the police were like, no. We already have our guys. Let's move on. Yes. So two weeks after Kitty's murder, the New York Times printed a front page article with the headline, 37 who saw murder didn't call police, which set off one of the craziest games of telephone in American history. Most of us have heard of the, quote, 28-year-old bar manager who had been robbed, raped, and stabbed to death outside of her apartment building in Queens in 1964, while 38 people watched or listened Mm -hmm. to her screams outside of their apartments, but did nothing to stop the attack for 30 minutes. Quote, in the years that followed, psychologists and others wrote about the Kitty Genovese effect, or the so-called bystander effect, which held that the greater number of bystanders, the less likely any one of them will intervene. Good Samaritan laws were passed in New York and elsewhere to encourage people to help victims. The murder helped lead to the creation of the 911 system, and folk singer Phil Ox wrote a song inspired by the incident. Genovese's name has been cited more than 100 times in the Los Angeles Times. A Fordham University professor called the case the most cited incident in psychology literature until the September 11 attacks of 2001. But the truth is, the New York Times got most of the story wrong. Most of you have probably heard us sing the praises of Prose and their truly custom made-to-order hair care. Switching to a custom routine from Pros was one of the best things I've done for my hair, and the results I'm seeing just keep getting better. A lot of you know that I have really thick, curly hair, and it can be really difficult to manage. With Pros, I was able to take a quiz, tell them exactly what I needed, and the products came. Not only do they smell amazing, but they have really made a big difference in my hair. It's shinier, smoother, it feels stronger and healthier. The curls hold all day. It's really pretty amazing. One of my favorite products is their hair mask. It's like a pre-conditioner that I put in my hair when I get in the shower and let it sit while I do the rest of my shower routine. When I rinse it out, you can feel the difference. I also love a lot of their styling products. Their hair oil is amazing. Their gel, it's nice hold, but doesn't leave it crunchy and flaky. I really can't recommend pros enough. 
By analyzing over 85 personal factors, Pros handpicks clean, sustainable sourced ingredients that get you closer to your hair goals with every wash. My favorite feature is Pro's review and refine tool, which lets me tweak my formulas for any reason in case I change up my address, my hair color, or even my diet. I notice that from the humid summers that we have into the dry, cold winters, my hair changes. Pro's is right there to help me switch things up. If you're not 100% positive Pro's is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Custom made-to-order hair care from Pro's has your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 50% off your first subscription order today, plus 15 off and free shipping with every subscription order after that. Go to pros.com slash they will. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash they will for your free in-depth hair consultation and 50% off your first subscription order. Do it. You won't regret it. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. The holidays are right around the corner and HelloFresh can help take the stress out of dinner by delivering everything you need to cook up tasty meals right to your door, saving you tons of time. The most wonderful time of the year is also the most delicious. Enjoy every bite of the holiday season with HelloFresh. Choose from over 45 weekly recipes and over 100 curated picks from HelloFresh Market. One of my personal favorites about HelloFresh is that I hate coming up with a meal plan for the week. It takes too much time, too much mental energy, and some days I just don't have it. So nice to just go in my fridge, grab the ingredients... They're all put in a bag together and use their really simple and delicious recipes to cook up a meal, not just for myself, but for my family too. Please go to HelloFresh.com slash theywillfree and use code theywillfree for free breakfast for life. You'll get one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash theywillfree with code theywillfree. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit for a reason. Free breakfast. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So Abe Rosenthal was a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist at the Times and was the editor of the city section when Kitty was murdered. One day, he ran into police commissioner Michael Murphy while ordering coffee. And so he was like, what's up with those two cases in Queens? But one of the ones he was referring to is the Barbara Kralik. Mm-hmm. And the police, they were trying very hard to keep him away, keep his name away from that case. And so to distract Abe Rosenthal, he was like, oh, yeah, that ki- that case, that Kitty Genovese case, quote, was one for the books and had 38 witnesses. Uh. So that's where this all started. Mm-hmm. 
The story had been lightly covered by several papers, but Rosenthal saw the potential in a case with 38 witnesses. <laughs> so assigned 42-year-old Martin Gansberg because he was, quote, new enough to not resent dogged, difficult work that might turn to nothing. Mm-hmm. And so Gansberg spent three days interviewing witnesses, neighbors, and cops, and then published his findings in a four-column front-page article. The result of the article was that most of Kitty's neighbors clammed up and wouldn't talk to police because they'd already been painted as complicit in her death. Mm -hmm. They did continue their questioning and slowly learned that there hadn't been 38 people who'd listened while Kitty was brutally murdered, but 38 people had been considered witnesses after the fact in the sense that they had seen or heard something that night, but most of them had been woken up by it and then had fallen back to sleep or thought it was typical rowdy city noises, and disregarded it. Very few people actually witnessed any part of the murder. Quote, the number 38 came from the police. That was enough. Nobody identified the 38 witnesses or counted the witnesses in the detective's report. The real accounting of neighbors who were awake and alert enough to hear the attack was five or six. Hmm. Which... Honestly, five or six is still a lot, and you're about to get real mad at about five or six people. The first person you should be the most mad at, one of the top, I think second most mad at, is Joseph Fink, who saw the attack from an apartment across the street and said he thought about getting his baseball bat and going downstairs, but didn't because he'd already had a long day and didn't want to get into it, so he went to sleep. Wow. He didn't even call the police, just went to sleep. Oh. (laughs) Wow. get, Get ready. Okay, I'm buckled in. Yeah, this guy, number one most mad at. So Kitty and Marianne's neighbor, Carl Ross, who was described as a very skittish gay man, Mm -hmm. like very high-strung and skittish, who had been drinking for hours and had heard Kitty's cries from below his window but was too scared to look, and then they eventually died down. Mm Mm-hmm. A few minutes later, he heard a noise from the backside of the building, and he paced around a while while he tried to figure out what to do. He eventually cracked open the door and saw Kitty on the ground with Winston over her, stabbing her. Mm -mm. Winston said he'd been, quote, lying between her legs when he heard the door open and a man peeked out. Then he shut the door real quick, only to peek out again a second later. Mm -mm. Ross mm-hmm. said he called a friend who told him to stay out of it no. and then called his neighbor and said he wanted to call the police but didn't want police knocking on his door. So the neighbor told him to call from her place. Uh-uh. Ross was too scared to take the stairs because Winston was still out there. And so he climbed out of his window <laughs> onto the roof <laughs> and then tumbled into his neighbor's window. Oh, my God. They then called Sophie Farrar, who screamed at them to call the police. So Sophie was Kitty's uh, next door neighbor who took messages for her and also yeah. was the one that she confessed, confided in that she wanted to have children. Right. So she was like, are you fucking kidding me? Call the police right now. And Sophie will come back up again as the only lone hero of this fucking story. Yeah. But she screamed at them to call the police. So they called at 3.55 a.m. around 30 minutes after the attack began. Oh, my God. Uh, When the attack was over, he brought vodka to Marianne's house and didn't tell her anything about what he'd seen. What? Yes. 
And then he was the one that she hung out with all day long after the fact, her, oh. him and another neighbor. Yes. My God. Quote, I sat there drinking with him. I didn't know that he could have saved her. Oh, I, I can't. I can't. And um, he's going to come back up again later, too, just so get prepared to be even way, way, way more mad at him. Great. This guy is the worst. What if he'd opened his door? What if he'd shouted? This man who was afraid of everything. He was the last person who should have been behind that door. When asked why he didn't do anything sooner, Ross said, I didn't want to get involved. Oh, my God. Uh, when I think of things like this, I feel like a coward. You know, yeah. generally, I feel like I would, I'm a coward. I'd be afraid. But yep. then I think I have actually been in cases before where I came across a couple at a golf course mm-hmm. and she was screaming. I was with a friend and when we came upon them, yeah. we took care of it. She said she was fine, but she was not fine. We didn't let her go with yeah. the man by herself. We got her away from him to safety. So yes. I know that, in fact, I would be brave enough to help people. Yeah. Just recently we had to call the police because our neighbor was fighting and yeah, saying that they were being choked. You do something. Yes. Yes. <sighs> you do something. We'll talk a little bit about the bystander effect and why people hesitate. There's a little insight not to defend Carl Ross because he's mm-hmm. a fucking coward, but to give a little context to his hesitation Police in New York, especially at the time, were not helpful or well-liked at all Mm -hmm. based on the flood of feedback and letters to the editor that came in afterward. Gay people and people of color were terrified of them. Mm -hmm. And most other people agreed that they were, quote, bullies with guns who frequently told people to mind their own business or Mm -hmm. would interrogate them about Mm -hmm. who they were and where they lived when they called to report screaming on the streets, Mm -hmm. if they answered at all. Yeah, that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, especially because Carl Ross was gay. And if you read any books like Stone Butch Blues or any accounting of being gay in New York at that time, it was extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. So. I do understand his hesitation. And also, yeah, there's some, a man stabbing her to death with the knife. They were kind of thrown something at him, mm-hmm. anything. So another man named Robert Moser heard the attack around 3.15 a.m. and leaned out his window to see what was going on. He saw Winston striking Kitty and yelled, leave that girl alone, thinking it was a domestic incident. And Winston did run away at that point. And Kitty got up and walked around the corner and out of sight. <laughs> Another neighbor, Andre Peake, testified that she saw the same thing but continued to watch until Winston returned Mm -mm. wearing a fedora with a feather in it, (laughs) which he put on to throw people off of his identity. Oh, my God. He checked the doors of the train station and, and then walked to the back of the building where Kitty had disappeared. Andre called the police, quote, but I was gasping for breath. She didn't speak English well and was also afraid of the police, so she hung up. Uh, She said that she did hear Kitty scream help two more times and then nothing. uh, Winston said, quote, I ran after her and stabbed her twice in the back. Somebody yelled and I was frightened, so I jumped back into the car, which he moved to hide the license plate in the shadows, then backed the car to the nearest cross street. I decided that even though this person had yelled, they weren't going to come down to the street to see what happened to her. And I noticed as I was backing the car back 
that the woman had gotten up and appeared to be going around the corner, so I came back thinking I would find her. Mm. She wasn't in the train station. It was locked, so I said to myself, well, perhaps she's in one of those hallways. The second door I tried opened, and there she was, lying on the floor. Oh, God. When she saw me, she started screaming again, so I stabbed her a few more times. She seemed to quiet down a little bit. She wasn't really struggling that hard with me now, so I lifted up her skirt and cut off her girdle. I cut or pulled her panties off, and she had a sanitary pad, and I picked that out and threw it away. I stabbed her again in the stomach. I cut off her brassiere, and I don't remember whether I cut her blouse or not, and I took one of the false pads that she had in the brassiere. I laid on top of her, and I attempted to have sexual intercourse with her, but was unable as I was impotent. Though I had an orgasm, I was not able to penetrate her. A woman named Irene Frost testified that she saw Kitty kneeling on the sidewalk screaming, please God help me, I have been stabbed. Sophie Farrar, who was Kitty's closest neighbor and friend, not she wasn't her closest friend, but she was also her friend, testified that she woke up when she heard screams, but when she didn't hear anything else, she went back to sleep. She woke up again a half an hour later when her neighbor called to report that Kitty was being stabbed in the stairwell below Ross's apartment, and she screamed at her to call the police. She then ran straight downstairs, unaware of whether or not there was still a madman attacking her friend nearby, and held Kitty and comforted her as she thrashed in fear. Carl Ross was standing at the top of the stairs, and so she ordered him to get her a towel, which he did, but he hesitated to bring it downstairs. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So Sophie had to lay Kitty down. No. To climb the stairs. No. To get the towel. You're kidding me. Oh my God. He went inside, got a hand towel, and then stood at the top of the stairs while Sophie laid Kitty's Mm-mm. dying body on the Mm-mm. ground Mm-mm. and walked up the stairs to grab. I w- and I'm sure it was some grubby hand towel from the side of the sink, you know? Yeah. That detail, up to that point, I was like, okay, okay. And then I was like, oh, hell no. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I can't. I don't even. Get it together. Get it together. (sighs) And Sophie, 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 you brave, sweet Mm -hmm. angel. I'm so glad Kitty had comfort. I'm so glad. Oh, my God. Somebody was there for her. Oh, after she saw her neighbors no. close the door on her murder. Mm. During psychiatric evaluations, Winston Mosley said that he liked baseball and dogs because, quote, dogs love you regardless, and that, quote, people remind me of flies. You know how they fly around out of reach, and then one comes just close enough for you to swat it? <laughs> okay, Norman Bates. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah, this guy is Norman Bates. He is terrifying. We went on trial on June 8th, 1984, and Kitty's family wasn't in attendance because they simply couldn't handle it, especially Mm -hmm. her mother. Mm -hmm. Kitty's brother said her siblings made it their priority to shield their mother from the full story that had completely taken over the media and would dominate conversations for decades. Quote, my mother could not handle it. We completely retreated. We dropped off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. 
Winston's defense was that he did kill Annie Mae Johnson and Kitty Genovese because he'd been driven mad by his abandoning mother, jealous father, molesting aunt, and the racism he'd experienced daily in America. They argued that the things he did to Annie Mae and Kitty were so horrible that they couldn't have been done by a sane man and that he was, quote, an individual prone to vent his spleen and his sex upon dead bodies because his troubled boyhood and sexual confusion had caused a fixation on women's stomachs and their Uh. blood because of his mother's tumor Uh. and, quote, finally erupted into this horrible series of atrocities. It was written about his own attorney, quote, in private moments, he had no trouble admitting that he found his client as loathsome as everyone else did. He had a healthy respect for Mosley's intellect, but considered him a particular sort of modern devil, a soulless psychopath, worse than an animal because he was more dangerous. The creepier he sounded, the better he thought, because if Mosley was insane, he could be found innocent of murder. Yeah. It's like his your mo- only hope at that point. I mean, yeah. 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 This guy sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, ugh. His mother blamed his father for ruining him with his aggressive behavior and said that Winston was our king. Ugh. Get out of here. Yeah. You don't get to have creepy, a... Creepy, creepy. Yeah. You don't his, get to have an opinion on your child. No. His father testified that he had been a gentle boy except for the time that Alfonso had threatened that he was going to shoot Fanny... Oh, my God. And Winston took his gun and said that he would do it instead if it needed to be done. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. thought he, not in defense of his mother. No. Ready to kill her he, himself. He clearly, I mean, he obviously loved his father and was yeah. stealing TVs for him and stuff. Right. And had a very complicated relationship with his mother, who he had let move in by the time of the yeah. murders. Right. Another time, he fought a boy that was beating up his father and took his eye out with a broken bottle. Holy shit. Yep. His first wife testified that she had cheated on him because she couldn't take his, quote, long silences and solitary habits. She said that he threatened to shoot her once, and when she took the gun away and pointed it at him, he just shrugged and said, kill me. Ugh. She said that he spent a good deal of time tending to his ant farm, feeding them bread and cockroaches. Oh, God, that's just a terrifying image. He liked to feed them cockroaches because, quote, the ants climbed on the larger insect and killed it with a thousand bites. Uh, Yeah. And like I said, you guys, I left a lot out about this guy. I left a lot out about how he killed these women. It's blood curdling, blood chilling. <sighs> Puts it in the blood freezer because this guy is so creepy. But that detail, oh God, just him. And he, if you see pictures of him, I'm about to describe him, the way he looks a little bit. He's a very beautiful man, but in the strangest way. And the I way really they like Norman Bates. Yes, really. It's giving honest, me yeah. serious Norman Bates feelings. Very much. His composure. He was always immaculate. Everyone said his clothes, his appearance, everything about him was just like perfect. The way he kept uh, his house, his yard. Oh, but him dropping cockroaches into a yes. farm and just studying it for hours. She said he would just sit there for hours. (laughs) She said that one time the ant farm tipped over and he sent everyone out of the room so they wouldn't step on them and then put them all back in the container one by one. His little babies. Oh my God, Courtney, please. This is not Mm -hmm. the other podcast. Yep. No, I know. I was shocked. This whole time we thought this was a mugging. And um, no, this guy's a straight up Norman Bates. You're right. Winston actually took the stand at his own trial. 
And quote, the most shocking thing about Winston Mosley is the cool delicacy of his face. Framed by a perfectly symmetrical cap of black hair, it is all smooth olive and shadows, and the eyes look out from a distance somehow deeper than their sockets. When Mosley speaks, his mouth works with a dainty economy. Other writers called Mosley cat-like, but at the same time there was something insectile about him. Mm. His sexual habits might invert those of Mantis religiosa, the predator that mates and then kills. But with his wide, watchful eyes and a body that was all angles, he looked like he could sit motionless as a mantis for hours, then spring to the attack. Mm -mm. Yes. He admitted to raping four or five women and said that, quote, an idea would come to my mind and it would override any other ideas I had. And I would just have to complete that idea. It was to me a compulsion. Yeah, I was going to say compulsion much. Yeah. He said that on the night he killed Kitty, he was looking for a white woman because he wanted to see if it was different from killing a black woman. Oh, my God. His attorney asked if he felt sorry for what he'd done, and he just said no. Uh-huh. The prosecution asked him a series of questions that illustrated how premeditated his crime had been. And when they asked him if he thought he was insane, he said, quote, I never really thought I was insane. But after listening to your summation of what I have done, it doesn't sound like something an ordinary person would do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> understatement of the century. <sighs> the jury deliberated for six hours and found Winston Mosley guilty of all charges and was prescribed the death sentence for the murders of Annie Mae Johnson and Kitty Genovese. The judge said, quote, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see this monster, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. Wow. And the courtroom erupted. Was like, ah! <laughs> but it turns out this whole case, guys, I'm not even done. Turns out that Judge Shapiro, the man who said that, was a, quote, brilliant jurist and an avowed opponent of capital punishment. Opponent of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. We believed that he was intentionally building reversible error into the case. That way, the public would be happy and Mosley could still escape the death penalty. Oh. So Shapiro could announce, I'd pull the switch myself, a quote that was reported all over the nation and the world, knowing that the reversal would come later when nobody was looking. Right. He'd refused to allow psychiatric evidence in the penalty phase of the trial knowing it would doom the conviction to reversal. Oh, shit. Quote, he could say he pulled the switch himself and get cheers for it and still get what he wanted in the long run. And that's exactly what happened. Holy shit. Yep. Mosley's sentence was commuted from death to life in prison in 1967. That's pretty clever. Pretty clever. Yeah. Yep. Four years later, he, oh my God, I forgot about this. Four years later, Mosley lodged a can of spam so far into his rectum that the prison doctor couldn't remove it, and so he had to be transferred to a local hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. He tried for an hour, couldn't get it out, and so he was transferred to a hospital. Oh, holy shit. They removed the can... He recovered for six days and then bolted from the hospital as he was changing his clothes to go back to prison. Oh, man. He managed to lose the officers, broke into an abandoned home where he found canned food, a knife, and a loaded 
gun. Oh, my God. Uh, Don't leave your loaded gun in an abandoned house. Three days later, he called the New York State Employment Service and said he wanted to hire a maid. So they sent (laughs) Zella Moore, a woman, who he then held captive and raped for five hours while she pleaded for her life. No, he did not. Yes. Courtney. Yes. He then set her free after warning her to keep her mouth shut. Zella was too afraid of Winston and didn't trust the police. So she didn't call them, but she did tell the employment service who contacted the daughter of the owner of the home Uh, to let her know that, quote, something funny is going on in that house. You are kidding me. No. And warned her that her mother shouldn't go back there. She's like, there's squatters over there. Something fishy. Yeah. That woman, (sighs) Janet Kaluga called the police but was told that there was about to be a shift change oh my god and asked her to call back an hour and a half later janet wasn't having it so she and her husband matt a 45 year old chemist who armed himself with a crowbar went to the house to get to the bottom of the squatter problem that they suddenly had Uh uh-huh when they got there winston held them at gunpoint oh my god took their money then had Matt stripped to his underwear before binding and gagging him. He then bound and gagged Janet, moved her to the next room, and raped her, but was unable to maintain an erection. When he was done, he offered to help her put her pants back on, Uh -uh. which she declined. Thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. I'm I'm okay. Mm -hmm. He then patted her on the head and said he, quote, hoped I'd never have another experience like this. Oh, my God, Courtney. He then dressed in Matt's clothes, asked how far it was to New York City, and drove off in their car. Holy shit. Yep. He then took a wrong turn and ended up on Grand Island, and in, which is near Niagara, Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls. <laughs> so we're like almost to Canada now. Okay. And instead of continuing on into Canada or heading back toward New York, he entered the apartment of Mary K. Potmos, who is home alone with her five-month-old daughter. Oh, please. I can't do it We're anymore. almost done. We're almost done. Five minutes later, Mary, and Mary Kay's co-worker showed up, a woman named Gladys Costanzo, and he took her hostage, too. He took Gladys to get him a car. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> he told Gladys to go get him a new car, or he'd kill Mary Kay and the baby. And so she called her husband, who called the FBI instead. Oh, good. Just cut to the chase. Just yeah. Let's fuck these police. When nobody likes the police, it is abundantly clear. Not one single person has called the police in this entire case, except no. After three people screamed at them to do so, right? I'm gonna just call the FBI. Yeah, fuck the police. I'm calling the FBI. (laughs) Odd. At the time, like, how do you get a hold of the FBI in the 1960s? I guess I don't feel like you can just pull open the yellow pages and thumb through to the FBI, but Uh -uh. maybe, maybe. So more than 200 officers surrounded the property, but kept hidden and sent Gladys back with a new car and a fake set of keys. But Winston sensed that it was a trap and so stayed in the apartment. So police called the apartment and let him know it was time to come out. He allowed special agent Neil Welch inside the apartment and they talked for an hour, mostly about how hard Mosley's life had been and how men were treated like animals in prison. In the end, Mosley gave himself up, and a reporter asked Special Agent Neil Welsh how he was able to talk to a guy like that, and he responded, 
very carefully. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I've seen enough movies to know that hostage negotiators have a hard job. Dude. <laughs> get out of here. Get out of here. I know I saw a Reddit last night that was like somebody asking a bomb someone on a bomb squad oh yeah how do you manage the strategies I don't because either I'm either successful or it's over and it's somebody else's problem (laughs) (laughs) I mean you know yeah it's a good good way to live your life really honestly so studies have been done since Kitty's murder to study what is now known as the bystander effect or Genovese syndrome And they have shown that when a person is alone and sees someone else who needs help, they help 70% of the time. But if they are in a group, they only help 7% of the time Mm. because they assume someone else is going to help or has already helped or that what they're perceiving is happening isn't as bad as they think it is, Mm -hmm. which I, I do that a lot in general. I always assume it can't be as bad as I think it is, especially because I have my pattern recognition is just always ringing the bells. Right. Mm -hmm. And I've learned at 44 years of age to trust my gut because it's almost always right. But I, I always need somebody else to affirm what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. because I don't trust it. I'm something I've noticed about myself a lot recently. There's also a distribution of the guilt if there are other people involved. And so a person's desire to not look foolish if they're wrong wins over the sense of guilt that they'll potentially feel if they don't help. Does that make sense? So a lot of people, most people don't act because they're polite. And if we're wrong, if all of us are wrong, then it wasn't just me. There are other people to transfer this to. Yes. Whereas if I help... And I'm just misperceiving this, then I look like an idiot, which Mm -hmm. who cares? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a real thing. Yeah. So learning more about how much of our lives is controlled around how we're going to be perceived. Right. right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And how we're all supposed to be so buttoned up and polite and, Mm -hmm. you know, decorum is more important than self-expression or Mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships. So between the years of 1964 and 1984, quote, more than 1,000 articles and books attempted to explain the behavior of bystanders in crisis. Mm. That was more than the number devoted to the Holocaust over the same 20 years. Wow. And I would assume that a lot of these articles were also looking at the Holocaust as one of the worst and most heinous examples of the bystander effect. I'm assuming that a lot of those articles included the Holocaust, but it's still interesting that Kitty's murder spurred more articles than the Holocaust did. Wow. Devoted specifically to this phenomenon. The 911 emergency system was implemented because of Kitty's murder. The streets of New York were lined with street lamps. Many states enacted a Good Samaritan law to encourage witnesses to help or call for help when they see someone in need. Other states require you to help as long as doing so doesn't put you in danger. Her case has also been cited during other reforms, quote, including victim and witness assistance programs, laws allowing victims to speak in felony trial, penalty phases, crime victim compensation, sex offender registries, neighborhood watch groups, and grassroots efforts to fight crime all over the United States. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Some people also give the case credit for the four men, Todd Beamer, Mark Bingham, Tom Burnett, and Jeremy Glick, who fought the hijackers during 9-11. Holy shit. Which diverted the second plane scheduled to hit the towers. Ideas of pro-social behavior were so ingrained in our society after her murder that it's safe to assume that some of the ripple effects had reached the men and had influenced their decision to be heroes that day instead of bystanders. Leading up to the 2002 war in Iraq, defense advisor Paul Wolfowitz used Kitty's murder as a metaphor to support the invasion. Wow. Which, that's a bad example, but I was like, holy shit, he actually cited her murder. Holy shit. As a defense for invading Iraq because oh he said, we can't, we can't just stand by. Yep. <laughs> oh, my God. Yep. Kitty's brother, Bill, went to Vietnam in 1966 and was notorious for taking risks because, quote, the question of apathy was in me in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I became known for taking risks. I couldn't let anything go without trying to act. He also stepped on a landmine and blew his legs off. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I know. Winston Mosley died in prison in 2016 at the age of 81. Sophie Farrar, the one neighbor who risked her own life and safety to help Kitty Genovese, died in 2020 at the age of 92. (laughs) I have one more sentence. (laughs) An uh, An article written after her death said, Quote, sure, some neighbors were scared, some were silent, some could and should have done more. But there were those who acted like friends, like neighbors, like heroes, even at risk to themselves. So Marianne Zylonko went on to build submarines. Oh, my God, of course she did. (laughs) For an electric boat in Groton, Connecticut. Wow. Yep. She took a job as a teletype operator, went to Brooklyn College. She has a bachelor's degree in social work and a master's in statistical analysis. Wow. She then moved to Rutland, Vermont after retirement and lived with her partner three and a half years. She says she's tried to reach out to Kitty's family with little success. And when they asked her what would have happened to Kitty, she said, I think she would probably own a bar and I think she would be happy. (laughs) We would both be. No. (laughs) No. Oh, my God, you guys. And that is the (sighs) blast to the heart and the mind that is the misunderstood murders of Kitty Genovese and Annie Mae Johnson. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to (sighs) put that together, man. What a doozy. What a doozy. And thank you, whoever requested that one. My God. I did not know that you were just sending me straight into the most fascinating, heartbreaking, terrifying, interesting. It's just holy shit. But I just couldn't stop crying about like what an impact her death had Mm to. Ugh. It's so, it's such a horrible, honestly, it's one of the most horrible things I've ever read in my life and also one of the most beautiful. Yeah. And then she was a lesbian and she lived in New York and she had this sweet little life and she was up against so much and she was so brave and had so much moxie. Yeah. The world is so beautiful and so complex. It's such an ugly and beautiful place. And mm-hmm. yeah, thank you again for recommending it because my God. There are so many stories out there that need to be told. Yes. 
or that were like the most told of all times, but incorrectly. <laughs> Wait, that's a good point. <laughs> I, uh-huh. I was shocked, shocked. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It really and, is. And another example of sensationalizing things that don't need to be mm-hmm. or changing it to be, I guess in this case, good came out of the switch in the story a little Definitely, bit. Definitely, yes. And so yeah. that's good, I guess, but that there's so much that we missed about her and who she was and who killed her and who he was and his other victims who were glossed over and not cared about. Completely glossed over, yeah. Yeah. What about them? Right. Yeah, Annie Mae Johnson. Honestly, I looked and looked. You can find her her name mentioned in relation to Kitty's name, but there's nothing about who she was. I don't know how, like her, her age, her life. I don't know anything about her. I'm sure it exists, but I couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. And the book that I read was so thorough, shockingly thorough, that I would have assumed that if there was a lot of information about her, it also would have been included. But he specifically was targeting black women because mm-hmm. he knew the police wouldn't care, that people were so afraid of the police that they just didn't want to have them come into their life mm-hmm. because it was never good mm-hmm. or rarely good. So that was interesting absolutely well to think about how recent homosexuality was illegal yeah that was very recently very recently even when i was a kid into my 20s i remember being 26 and working at a salon spa and i worked with a bunch of young women two of us were lesbians we figured it out after a while but you just assume, you know, you showed when you're your that. membership card. Exactly. Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> you pulled out your toaster oven mm-hmm. or whatever. You have short hair. I have short hair. <laughs> Actually, I had long hair, which is funny. But um, I remember it coming out. We started hanging out and became quickly became like a group, a just a gang of besties. But one night, somehow it came up and I told one of them that I was gay. And she was like, what? I've known you for this long. She's like, Courtney, it's like finding out you have a wooden leg. <laughs> but I was still was so afraid to tell people. Yeah. I'd been out for 10 years at that point. It just was not, it was dangerous. It was scary. And I, it wasn't illegal when I came out, but it was still so fucking taboo. People were disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just didn't let people know. Mm-hmm. It was too dangerous. The experience of people's perception shifting to have people's perception of you shift based on a detail and to be afraid of, I don't want you to think less of me. I don't Mm -hmm. want you to think differently of me. I don't care anymore, obviously, Mm -hmm. and and not even just about being gay, but about all of the parts of me that I've kept hidden my whole life. I think it's Mm -hmm. real clear on this podcast that I don't give a shit Mm -hmm. because I'll be happy to squawk a shouty outy like a (laughs) lunatic, but... (laughs) But that was a big part of it, too. Even if this isn't dangerous, it was not good to be gay. <laughs> no, no, I don't know personally, but yes. Yeah. I, there you go, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. Yeah. It's terrible and important and yep. shocking. Mm-hmm. And all of the other words that I can't think of right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you see something bad happening, help. Just help. Call the police. Mm-hmm. Call a friend. Call a... Don't call a friend. Call <laughs> the police. <laughs> call a biker gang. Somebody, yeah, right. you know? Somebody. Whoever is at your disposal that could help somebody who's being hurt. Get a tactical whip. Whip them. Yep. 
knock them out, roundhouse kick them. Scream at them. Scream at them, throw something at them. Puke on them. Yeah, pee, pee, pee. Mm -hmm. Pee Pee-pee on them. Anything. I mean, really, the guy with the fucking washcloth could have just pissed downstairs on the killer. (laughs) Something. Anything. I I love the TikToks of women walking like crazy lunatics to get home safely. Uh All right. This episode is running very long. Mm-hmm. Sadie and I have been recording at least one episode a day for days and days. Uh, this is why I haven't had a vacation in eight years. I leave uh-huh. tomorrow for 12 days and the amount of work that it has taken to prepare for that is staggering. So <laughs> I will be just getting back, I think, when this one airs. And I promise shouty outies. I promise name time after that. But we are husks of human beings. Mm-hmm. Also, just dealing with the overwhelm of everything that's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Um we're a little wrung out right now, so thank you for your patience while we uh, are tired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but when I come back, I will have been on vacation, I will have cleared my head, and I will be ready to shower you all in shouty outies and name times and all the other things you've come to demand from me, <laughs> from us. Things will get weird. You'll be jet lagged. It'll be great. It'll be great. Yeah, I'll have some. I'll have some sort of like weird London accent. You have that to look forward <laughs> to, like an Italian London accent. You'll be like, you know, when I lived in London. When I lived in London for forty-eight hours. Oh yeah, I know everything about English breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. Oh, God. So much to look forward to. Uh, so much to look forward to. <laughs> Um, no. So thank you guys. Thank you. And I love you. And I am mm-hmm. going on a much needed vacation, but I'll come back and we will metaphorically and mentally and emotionally make out with yes. each other. And if you want to spend some time with us in the meantime, we're also front loading TikTok. So you can go over mm-hmm. to TikTok, you go to Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at They Will Kill. You can go to our website, theywillkill.com, and you can always email us at theywillkillpodcast at gmail.com. You can read, review, subscribe to us, tell your friends. Tell your friends. Yes, please. And thanks, Ager. Ager. Thanks, <laughs> thanks Ager, for your music. AJ Bergantz for your music. Thank you so much. And remember... Get your little sweet asses out there. Start twirling and wiggling and all those sorts of things and help each other. Help each other, speak out, and help each other. There's plenty of opportunities to speak out right now. Take them. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. Good Lord. We love you all so much. Thanks for being here. And we will see you very soon. We love you, baby. We love you. Goodbye. 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 Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.